Living Corporate is brought to you by The Access Point. The reality is, this is the largest influx of black and brown talent corporate America has ever had. And as a result, a variety of talent entering the workforce are first-generation professionals. The other reality? Most of these folks aren't learning what it means to navigate a majority white workplace in their college classes. Enter The Access Point, a live weekly web show within the Living Corporate Network that gives black and brown college students the real talk they need and likely haven't heard elsewhere. Every week, our hosts and special guests are dropping gems, so don't miss out. Check out The Access Point, airing every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Central Standard on livingcorporate.tv. My father always described diversity as this thing that is really about asking questions and overturning a rock and you look what's underneath and there are these things that are underneath that you didn't expect because you never asked the question. So a lot of it is continually asking questions about how things are integrated into what you do. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate and whoo, I ain't gonna hold y'all today. <laughs> today is a fire episode. <laughs> oh man, I'm not I came in, I can't even hold it. It's just it's, it's just a heat, heat, heat episode, man. Thank you. Um, you know, I'm gonna just say it off the top, man. Thank you to Dropbox for uh for working with your boy Rockin' with Living Corporate excited about the conversation we had with uh with danny guillory who is the vice president and chief diversity officer at dropbox just had a dope conversation you know really talking a lot about just this space and this work and the experiences of black folks specifically at work and the the dynamics uh within black professional spaces and this propensity to gatekeep and power hoard right and and not and just not share not share information not share spotlights not share just not share um and, and i've said this before i'll say it again y'all we're not going to progress as a collective group across the black diaspora if we try to practice the same patriarchal capitalistic white supremacist tactics on each other like it just doesn't work like that we need to reimagine how we show up for one another in these colonized western high spaces we we do it, it's not sustainable for the future of work if we don't radically reimagine how we operate in these spaces right like we buy into the propaganda that there's only so many crumbs on the plate. There's more to be had and to be shared. But it takes truly um, a courageous and a courageously different mindset than the ones that, frankly, so many folks uh, practice uh, who, who are privileged enough to get in positions of power, authority, or, or exclusive majority white spaces, right? Like uh, we have to do better in that regard. And you know, I can continue to talk about this. And I, I do think that we're going to need to have some more conversations about just like black economics, group economics, 
and, and how to take that same mindset of grassroots organizing and sharing, truly sharing wealth and wealth. And in, in this context, I'm talking about knowledge um, and network for the sake of, of growth in corporate context. Right. Like we have to now as we radically shift and change in how we organize. Yes, the white power structure in corporate spaces will also adjust and create means to distract and disassemble us. But that doesn't change the fact that we still need to be intentional about how we organize and move together. We're just not right now. Right. And there's so many reasons as to why we aren't doing that. But, you know, again, for another podcast, all that being said, really, really appreciated my discussion with Danny. As you can tell, I have a lot of thoughts in, in my mind just as I went back and listened to our conversation, all the things that we talked about and the, the new ideas that it sparked and the things that I'm really I really want to get to. And hopefully we'll get to it in part two. We'll continue to expand on this on this dialogue that you'll you'll hear that we had. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and tap in with Tristan. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Today, I'd like to discuss three things we can do to show our coworkers appreciation in this digital age. It's essential that we build fans of our work to help progress our careers. Fans are like your hype squad, the people who amp up the crowd. They give you a break from always hyping up yourself and are willing to tell any and everyone how great they think you are. As much as we need to build a fan base for ourselves, our coworkers need to build a fan base too. Since this can easily become a reciprocal relationship, I think it's important that we take some time out to recognize those we believe are doing good work. Working in a virtual setting can make this a bit more challenging, but here are three ways to express your gratitude. First, give them a LinkedIn recommendation. I know this may seem basic, but similar to product or restaurant reviews, Recommendations on a public platform like LinkedIn act as social currency that can help boost their professional brand. These recommendations provide social proof that they do the work they say they do, which can help if they are ever on a job search, especially externally. Take the time to write a well thought out recommendation that provides specifics on how you all work together and how your coworker provided value or created results. Second, send them an email they can use in their performance reviews. We all have to do self-assessments at the end of the year. What better way to tell a coworker that you're a fan than to help them make the case for more coins or a promotion? Send them an email detailing how their work impacted you and the results you all were able to create. If you'd like to take it up a notch, you can even CC their boss on the email to increase awareness. Lastly, you can nominate them for a company-wide recognition program. Most of our organizations have these programs, but the majority of us ignore them throughout the year. However, they could be a great way to highlight that teammate or coworker, especially since some of the programs are announced throughout the company, which could help boost their profile. Now, these aren't the only ways to tell your teammate, coworker, or boss thank you and that you're a fan, but these are a great start in boosting the visibility of the amazing work they're doing. Thanks for tapping in with me today. Don't forget, I'm now taking submissions from you all on career questions, issues, concerns, or advice you think may help others. So make sure to submit yours at bit.ly forward slash tap in Tristan. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume or connect with me, Tristan Layfield on LinkedIn.
Living Corporate is brought to you by The Break Room. Have you ever felt burnt out, depressed, or otherwise exhausted by being one of the onlys at work? You know what I'm talking about. Hosted by black psychologists, psychiatrists, and PhDs, The Break Room is a live weekly web show in the Living Corporate Network that discusses mental health, wellness, and healing for black folks at work. Name another weekly show explicitly focused on mental health, wellness, and healing for black folks at work. I'll wait. This is why you got to check out The Break Room, airing every Thursday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time on livingcorporate.tv. Danny, what's going on? How you doing, man? I'm doing fine, Zach. How are you? You know, I'm good. Now, look, um, it's interesting. I, I just want to get started straight up because we talked off mic and we talked a little bit about, about your journey. You know, why are you in this role? Why do you do this? And then why do you do it at Dropbox? That's a great question. For me, the journey really started with with my father. So my father actually used to be a chemistry professor, taught for many, many years, and and decided he wanted to do something a little different eventually. He, he decided the way he puts it is that he found people more interesting than molecules. And so in about the mid-1980s, before diversity was really something that was talked about or even a term that was used in a corporate context, he started one of the first companies doing work in diversity, equity, and inclusion, consulting with a lot of companies, a lot of what were back then technologies that wouldn't be considered tech today, but they were back then. He always wanted me to work with him. And of course, like any good son, the last thing I wanted to do was, was work directly with my father. And so I went off for a career in law and did other things, but eventually came back to work with him. And I think the reason why was that the one common theme that ran through my life was that I really enjoyed seeing people reach their full potential. So even when I was in law school, I assistant taught at an elementary school, a bilingual elementary school in Boston, and really enjoyed seeing kids develop and grow. During undergrad, I used to mentor kids from the local elementary school. And for me, even now today, uh, I, I love the work that we do on a grand scale, but I think the moments that mean the most to me are when I get an email or a message or something from somebody that says some program impacted them in some way, where it says they made this decision in their career or they experienced some kind of transformation because some of the work that we've done. So for me, I think the driving factor in everything that I've done, if I look at all of my different experiences, has really been about people reaching their full potential. And that's really, in essence, what, what diversity, equity, and inclusion are about. To get specific though to Dropbox, I think what was unique about Dropbox for me was the level of commitment when I got there. So even when I arrived, there were already a set of very specific goals related to the representation of women and underrepresented minorities at the company. They already had a lot of the systems in place too. So when you do diversity work, even though I can be, I can be, be principled about it, I can talk about it, a lot of it is working in between the lines and, and having systems actually start to change and systems start to recognize and acknowledge where there are gaps. And a lot of the systems and things that I was hoping to measure to be able to understand what to do were already in place. There were already a set of commitments and expectations of executive staff in terms of what some of their roles were to be and what they were committed to. And I think the other thing that's really important, and we can talk about this at some point, is there is already a commitment to funding the function because a lot of times organizations, when they do this, 
we'll try to hire one person to transform an organization with respect to diversity. And that's very difficult to do. And here, there was already commitment to having a team in place. And that made a difference. You can really be a force multiplier where you have people. And if you don't, it's really difficult to do that. So I think those were some of the elements for me that made the prospect of coming to Dropbox really attractive. You said a few things there. I, I want to double click on a couple of them, though. So you, know, you talk about systems. It's interesting. I, we're in this place, right, where you know, th there's this growing tension between what I'm going to call, so not, not the work that your father was doing, which is super dope, but like this, like, I'm going to say white majority diversity and inclusion, this corporatized diversity and inclusion. And I'm going to say like this, like a spectrum. And I've talked about this before. I've, you know, I've brought this up with um, Antoine Andrews, who is the chief diversity and impact officer at Survey Monkey. I've talked to Mary Frances Winters and other people on the, who've uh, graced uh, living corporate. But there's like a spectrum, right? It's like this, like really conservative diversity and inclusion, which is like really focused on individuals, focused on unconscious bias very binary in its um, analysis of people groups. And then there's this other side, which I would say is more quote unquote liberal, which is more focused on like analyzing systems of power and equity and justice and solving or repairing harms and things of that nature. But I, I still believe, Dan, I'm curious to get your perspective on this. I do believe there's still a tension between these two camps. And I know that there's, of course, spaces and spots in between these two, ex these two extremes I'm discussing. But I I'm curious, like, as you think about one, one, do you agree that that framing is accurate? And then two, if so, where do you see things breaking? And, and I asked that, and, and now, so now, so look, now I'm asking you a three prong question, so here I go. <laughs> but it's cool. I'm gonna keep it going. So okay. I asked, I asked that because as I look at, um, let's talk about as an example, most recently, this anti-Asian, uh, clearly terroristic action and murder of of eight um, individuals by someone with supposed white supremacist ties and you know you have all these asian activists like out in the street again like these are not your corporate professionals these are folks who are out there doing the work and they're saying look we need to call out white supremacy we need to name these behaviors we need to talk about these i'm going back to what you said systems and i know you weren't talking about in this context but i'm 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 naming it because it it strung something for me i'm curious about all of this and like just where do you see this diversity and inclusion work like when do you see it breaking and like in terms of like uh, having a stance and really having like a consistent point of view on naming systems calling out systems for actual change and systemic impact okay so you've asked me a lot of different things zach <laughs> so so let me, let me go about that and, and and it's fair they're, because they're, they're linked but let me let me start out first of all by saying that what happened recently a couple of days ago in in Georgia is tragic and and horrifying and disappointing and i think there's a longer discussion about kind of the state of of things today and and i can also share a little bit later on some of the unique things that we're doing in general around uh, around the increasing violence towards asian americans and asians um, within the United States in particular, uh, but I'll talk about that a little bit, a little bit later. I think the, the major question that you asked is this, is this, and, and it's a great one because we're really facing it as diversity professionals front and center right now. And that's this distinction between how we typically measure success with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations, and increasingly what the expectations are of 
people within organizations and what they want them to do. And it is a tension. It is a tension. You're absolutely right. We as diversity professionals, and it may be generational, you know, that may be an element to this. We as diversity professionals have typically measured, and, and this is how I think about my own work. Am I getting a fair paycheck? So pay equity. Um, am I getting opportunities for training and development and to grow in terms of my skill set? Am I getting projects that I like and enjoy and that help me to grow and develop? Am I getting an opportunity to be promoted um, fairly with respect to my other colleagues? Um, am I getting uh, opportunities to continue to be successful in the organization? Those are typically the standards by which, at least when I grew up, I usually evaluated an organization. And that's the, the framework that we as diversity professionals have typically used because it's very tangible. Um, it's, it's something that is an outcome that you can, you can measure very clearly and understand very clearly. What's happened, I think, is that, and again, I don't know if it's generational. It may be, I don't know. But the expectations seem to be shifting in terms of what people want. I think some people believe those are table stakes now. And of course I get all that. And now I also want you to play a role organization in terms of what's happening in the external world. And, and it's something that I, I don't have a, a, a solution for yet because a lot of the solutions for it are things that sometimes are symbolic. And it's something kind of that I struggled with sometimes. To give you an example of what I mean, um, when things happened last summer with, uh, with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, there are a lot of people in our organization who pushed immediately to do what I refer to as kind of performative things, okay? Things that, things that we share, we share with the public. And, and my point was that to the organization was that I don't want to do something that just runs out on the next news cycle because that's what tends to happen with performative actions. So what we did instead was in addition to in addition to donations and showing and showing solidarity with Black Lives Matter when everything happened, we also organized a six month series called Truth and Reconciliation, where each week, about every week, we had speakers come in um, to talk about different issues that the black that the black community had experienced in America. So whether it was policing, it was policing one month, education another month. Um, we also did the history of resistance another month healthcare and health policy. And we had people come in to really share in a multidimensional way. We had people who were academics. We had uh, people who led different movements. We had authors, we had poets, a variety of different people who came in and shared all of this. And then we completed the whole series by then saying, now that we as an organization have an in-depth understanding, let's see what kind of action we want to take, whether it's individual or collective, and we took people through a workshop where they were then able to kind of identify what resonated with them the most, as well as whether or not they wanted to do something on an individual basis or with other people. So for me, what I what I try to do is is to is to make sure that whatever we do is also substantive in some way. I'll give you another example. We've done some things with respect to the response to the violence against Asians and, Asians and Asian Americans in the United States. And by the way, I need to tell you that that issue is one that is um, very personal to me. My wife is actually Korean American 
and his and his experience being yelled at on the streets over the past couple of months uh, by people in San Francisco. So it's something that is is very very personal to me. And so what we've done is we have shared communications with the organization as well as places where people could donate and do different things um, to, to 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 donate and support causes that were working against Asian working against the violence against Asian Americans. But what we've also decided to do is something a little bit what I consider to be unique. Uh, and that is that this also, because of the way it's been portrayed, has unfortunately started to raise some of the historical or more recently historical challenges between the black community and the Asian and Asian American community. So we've actually, we're just launching actually next week, a kind of study group of people from our Asians ERG, as well as our black employee resource group at Dropbox to go through a study group where we'll be reviewing and talking about this, this, th these experiences and how we got to this place as communities, not us as individuals, but as communities and, and kind of making, sharing a joint statement in terms of our learning and where we'd like to take things as take the dialogue as an organization going forward. Again, what I'm talking about here are things that are less performative. Um, although I think that's important to show solidarity, I think it's important to do something that's really transformational. And what I also, you know, you asked me why I, why I'm at a place like Dropbox. It's because I have the opportunity to do what I consider to be transformational work not only performative work. So I'm not saying those performative things aren't important because that's what a lot of people will look at and see. But like I said, I want something to live past a new cycle. Um, but in terms of the tension you've talked about, it's a hard one because we are a business. All of us are in businesses that need to make money. Okay? And, and our primary thing that we do as employees of an organization when we take a paycheck is we serve that organization to help them to be profitable. That's, that's kind of the general contract that, that we have with organizations. And so figuring out what that, how, how to toggle that attention and, and focus and effort is something that frankly is kind of new and that I think myself and my peers in this work are all trying to navigate right now. So first of all, thank you so much. Um, you know, and to your point around this, the, the black and Asian uh, tension. That's that's so true, and I've yet to see any organization organization um, really engage that. Um, to to your to your larger point, I believe it has something to do with just technology, right? That that creates this new expectation and demand around what organizations should do. And then you know, frankly, with the internet uh, comes a greater level of awareness uh, in real time, right? You think about Twitter. And yes, there's and yes, there's challenge with Twitter and yes, there's trolls and stuff on Twitter. But when you think about Twitter as an information hub, it's just so much real time information. There's live video. I'm not having to wait on the newspaper or even necessary for it to go through like some type of journalistic or editorial lens. I'm getting raw information directly to me in real in near real time. There's been all these studies about how much faster information travels from Twitter than from like your traditional media channels or even uh, web uh, news websites. And so I think with that information comes a higher expectation of action. And then on top of that, like and, and information uh, in this context being specifically around, you know, maybe what the, the, the kind of business that companies are in that maybe we weren't, we wouldn't have had as much transparency as we, you know, today as we would have had 
I mean, t- today we have much more transparency than we did like in the early 2000s or late 90s around like how these companies, uh, you know, make their money or what they're actually involved in or what their board believes. You know, there's all it's just so much more awareness, which then I, I then creates a heightened level of expectation in terms of, OK, what are y'all going to do? Now, now I'm gonna push you on something because what you said, what you said was cool, right? And and I and you know it was one of my questions about this truth and reconciliation program. Let me let me ask you something. You know, there's these a lot of organizations will will do um, certainly not as um, not as not as robust as what you described, but will do some sort of activity where we will bring in a, a Ibrahim Kindi, we'll bring in a, a, a Dr. Robin D'Angelo, uh, we'll bring in so-and-so and we'll have these conversations um, about sh- about the ideas of racism or the ideas of white supremacy or the, um, the historicity of uh, black struggle in America or whatever the case is, we'll bring in external people. My question is, where, if at all, is there an opportunity to we can do that. The and there's there's a and, and I respectfully I say there can be a, a a bit of theater to that. Not I'm not speaking to your program. I wasn't there, but I'm speaking to this idea of like, hey, we're going to do this thing. I think it kind of goes back to what you said about being performative. I think there's a certain degree of internal perf- performance as well, right? So my question is, where, if at all, can organizations also take those ideas where we're talking about these concepts in theory outside of our company? And then start thinking about how policies and things need to shift inside of the company. Like, is there space for that? And if so, like, what do you, what, what would you imagine that looks like? That's really interesting. So I, I think what that requires is people starting to think about diversity as, as integrated into everything they do. So, so first of all, it requires having the understanding. So going through, some in-depth process where you start to you start to see all these things in some way. So that's why the the mindset and awareness piece is important. Diversity, my father always described diversity as this thing that is really about asking questions and overturning a rock and you look what's underneath and there are these things that are underneath that you didn't expect because you never asked the question. So a lot of it is asking continually asking questions about how things are integrated into what you do. An example of what I mean where something starts to become integrated into the business. There are two examples actually that I have for you. One that I didn't come up with, which I'll highlight first, and one that I've been thinking about for a long time that we're actually moving on. One that I that one that one of the people within the company actually came up with themselves is she had been through the truth and reconciliation program. And and one of the things that we do at Dropbox is we have a set of of councils that periodically will review our products, give feedback on them, and will give us insights to different things that we're trying to do. And she came to me and had this meeting with me and she said, Danny, I have an idea. I said, Danny, one of the things that I'd like to do is I'd like to have the next council we have on this particular product feature. I don't remember which one it was. I'd like to have this next council consist solely of people of color, like a hundred percent. And I said, are you sure? You know, does this have implications for the product? And she basically said that I've gotten plenty of feedback and we as a company have gotten plenty of feedback from the majority population. And so I'd like to 
change that experience dramatically and see what we're missing. And I said, okay, I think, I think that's great. I'd love to see how the business responds when you say this. And she went ahead and did it. And actually the results of the process that she went through were featured on video at one of our recent all hands that went out to the entire company. So that's an example of where when you start to talk about these things and we still work at a business, how can you start to take these principles and apply them in a way that is that is starting to actually transform in a significant way? So I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a couple of business examples first. Another example that I have for you is there's been a lot of talk about artificial intelligence and diversity and bias in artificial intelligence. But what has been missing a lot of times is what in a practical way to do about it. We talk about things at a high level where we where people will say we should have diversity in data sets. Okay, understand that. People will also say we have to make sure that we have diverse teams working on AI. Absolutely, I get that. So I'm not I'm not denying all of those. Those types of those types of um, steps are fa- are foundational and absolutely necessary. But I think what we miss sometimes in the dialogue is what can we actually do as an organization also? One of the things that we decided to do that I'd always thought about in my mind but wanted to play with is we actually put together what we call a product diversity council, where what we did was we called on people from our different employee resource groups. So representatives, we have about seven different employee resource groups at Dropbox. And we asked them at different points in the product development cycle with certain selected products to actually go through and review the product for bias from a remedial end. So thinking about things from their identity and thinking about how the product could be biased. And then also from a proactive end, is there an opportunity that we're potentially missing? What's interesting to me, for example, when we think about CS education, when we think about the way that different schools sequence education, and do we really think that's that's needed or necessary all the time? Or does that create a barrier that's unnecessary. Um, do they? Do people even need to come from a traditional background to be able to be successful in CS? And I think there are some questions that we can start to ask and be more revolutionary about and revisit that can start to have the impact that you're talking about. Because if Dropbox says, like we have with one of our programs called Ignite, we can take somebody in who doesn't come from a traditional CS background, give them about three to six months, and they can become a full-time kind of software engineer at the end of the process. Okay. That's something that creates access. That's something that creates that creates opportunity that many populations have not had. So, you know, right now, you know, we're seeing publications that expose companies regarding the experience that black employees are having at work. Like we're seeing that, you know, we've seen uh, major tech companies um, experience this um, as of like just the past couple of weeks. I'm curious, what in your perspective are warning signs for executive leadership that something like that is coming? That's a great question, Zach. I, I, I honestly don't think there are particular warning signs anymore. And I think it goes back to what you what you said before. I think the expectations that people have of the workplace, I think because of the access that we have in the access that we have through social media to different channels, our willingness to share our lives in ways that we weren't in the past. I mean, when I grew up, 
I couldn't imagine putting my whole life on television or on a web for everybody to see. And yet that's, and yet that's very common now. So people are much more willing and open to, to sharing. And I also think, as I mentioned before, the expectations are a little bit different. I think, so I, I think more than anything, what a company has to do is there's not necessarily going to be a warning sign because anybody can, anybody can be prepared to say anything at any point. I think what you need to be is, is confident in your efforts and what you're doing and that they're genuine because, because if you're confident about that, and if you're doing good work and you really are investing in it and taking it seriously, then that helps in terms of being able to respond as, as things like this come up. Now, there are common things that you could look at like, like promotion rates, like advancement rates, like retention rates, like sentiment that you get from, from employee engagement surveys where you can cut it by different demographic groups and everything else. So those are some of the obvious things. But I guess what I'm saying and suggesting is that even if you do all of that, that information may not still head off something like that coming or may not even, you could be, you could be great along all of those metrics nowadays, I think, and still have somebody have an experience that doesn't necessarily track with that. And, so, and, and also, again, as we talked about with the different channels, I think people's willingness to share and having multiple channels means that it may come up because I as an employee can always go and post anything I want to on LinkedIn. I don't even need a great podcast like this or the New York Times or anybody to carry what I say. I can share something and get a thousand likes tomorrow if I want to. So I, so to answer your question, I, I don't think there, there, there are some basic things that I think you need to, that any, any good company that's doing work around diversity would look at anyway. But in terms of being prepared for any one person sharing something about an experience that hasn't been, hasn't been ideal from their perspective, that could happen no matter, no matter how great the work is that a company does. Yeah, you know, and I think in the, in the spirit of that, you know, there continues to be a, this larger critique around tech and diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, despite the, the supposed focus over the past 10 and a half years to 15 years, by the numbers, right? When you think about representation and you think about um, turnover and, uh, and again, representation at all levels, recruitment, we really haven't seen drastic change, but we've spent, you know, I mean, there's, there's been studies showing that we've spent billions, you know, tens of more than 10 to $15 billion on, you know, unconscious bias training and all these different things. And yet, you know, we haven't really seen again, that needle move. Why do you think that is? So there are, I think there's some, some historical reasons that, that make it difficult. But what that means is that there will be some dramatic solutions that will be required. So historical reasons are obviously in terms of both uh, what the, the access that um, in particular the black community has had to certain, to certain educational opportunities that are you know, well-documented historically. Some of it also has to do with, with geography and where companies have chosen to locate themselves. Um, 60%, a McKinsey report came out recently that said basically that about 60 plus percent of the black workforce in the United States is spread across the South. So that means they are not in Seattle. That means they are not in San Francisco. That means they are not in New York. Okay. They are spread out across the South. And I know you know that well because you live in the South. <laughs> um, so, so there's something about geography there too. What it does mean though, is that there are opportunities for solutions, but the solutions are going to have to be radical 
and different. Let me give you an example of one that even though I know it, it, it's, it's still capturing a certain college educated segment, one that we're actually in the process of, 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 of starting right now. We have a unique role in our organization that's called a, it's called a site reliability engineer. And I won't go into the details of what that is because I don't know if I understand it entirely myself. I'm, I'm, I'm a lawyer by training. I'm not a, I'm not a software engineer, but basically it's the kind of role that they don't train for in school. It's one that when you come to Dropbox, because it's a really unique, it's a unique kind of thing, no matter what your background is, you basically have to get trained in it. And so one of the software engineers came to us and said, you know what? I really care about our representation in terms of black employees and I want to do something different. We have to train people anyway, when they come here to do this role, it doesn't matter whether they went to Howard or Harvard or Stanford or North Carolina A&T. It doesn't matter. They, they still are going to have to get trained to do this. So why don't we do this? Why don't we just go ahead and set up the first three months of their time? We'll hire them still. They'll be hired as a full-time employee, but for the first three months of their time here, what we're going to do is we're just going to train them and they will go ahead and start the role because they would have to do that for the first three months, no matter who they were. And, and that's the kind of thing. And that's something that we're actually in the process of, we're beginning the process of recruiting for that and are hoping to hire our first cohort doing that in, um, for, we would hire them in the fall and they would come on, uh, next year. And so what I'm suggesting by that is not to do something like that specifically. It could be that, it could be anything else, but what it requires is people asking questions and being radical about how they do things. Doing things around the edges isn't going to, isn't going to move those numbers. And that's why I don't think those numbers have, ne has ne have necessarily moved on an industry-wide basis. Most organizations, and again, you know, we're not perfect by any stretch, we're getting better and we're, and we're, and we're pushing at it. So I'm not claiming that we're perfect and we have it and we have it all figured out yet, but I think all of us as diversity professionals, but not just us, the organizations that we work for have to be serious about asking some radical questions and doing things radically different. If we want to see a different result, because the gap and the, uh, the opportunity gap is so large that just doing things, just changing the system a little bit isn't going to dramatically impact the result that we have. You know, I just, one, I'm blown away right now. You and I had a conversation offline, so I knew you were already excited about being here. But I'm, I'm kind of, because you're, a, like you said, you're a lawyer by trade. That's your background. You know what words meaning, and you still said it anyway. You used the word radical. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm brought to pause that somebody from such a large brand would say that to me <laughs> over <laughs> here. Because now I'm about to say, I agree with you that there needs to be a radical reimagining of a lot of systems. And I also agree. I'm going to say the things that you maybe can't say the way that I can say it because this is a space. You know what I'm saying? It's a little different. I agree that a lot of these companies aren't very serious in terms of and or they're not willing to take the steps that it really is going to take because of these gaps. Um, that is so true. I, I think sometimes we say, oh, OK, we're going to donate a million dollars to the NAACP or we're going to stand up a voluntary ERG group that's going to give extra time for recruitment efforts when we remember to send them an email and ask if they can drive out to this, this, that, or third, or, you know, we're going to, we're, we're going to kind of tack on things, but where everything that you just spoke to, um, in, in, uh, it, it indicates intention and it indicates investment because it takes, 
I, I'm I would love to have a separate conversation about how much money it costs. Now, of course, there's opportunity costs, but just to like hire somebody and just train them, like not hire them and then have them, you know, like you're literally just hiring your the investment on the back end, though, as I'm sure y'all y'all did it with the numbers in mind. But I can tell you that most companies are going to hear that program and balk and say, well, wait, I, no, I mean, we have to. And so to your whole point at the top, you, you talked about cap. You talked about the fact that we need to, you know, companies make money. But I dare say this is the first time someone's been on this platform and somehow maintained some effort of like, I don't know. It's just, it's not, it doesn't sound as exploitative the way that you talk about it, Danny. I'm kind of impressed. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. I'm not yeah. going to lie. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit taken aback because so many times, so much of this work you talked to, you said at the top of this is about investment and like making sure people are, are, there's that there's capital there's financial support behind it and i i you know you said it's very hard i'm gonna go one step further and say it's not actually possible to make these changes without someone being willing to spend big money right for these systems to really change i just i'm just i i'm i'm gonna be honest with you man let me get this give danny a round of applause man I, I, I'm I'm impressed. I, I I you know I'm an honest guy. That's dope. Go ahead. I'm, I'm cutting you off. You got it. Yeah. No. 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 It's uh, I I think you know some of it's investment, but a lot of it is also um, it's also about peers and colleagues because even with a team that I have, so my team is a little bit larger than most. We're a two thousand a twenty five hundred person company, and I have a team of me plus six, which is more than a That's more a significant team. It's a, it's a pretty significant team in comparison to at least a lot of my colleagues and other organizations. And even with that, though, I can tell you that the only way this works is if my partners in recruiting, in learning and organizational development, in our group that actually are our, our human resource business partners, are the different hiring managers that we work with, the group that runs the hiring process for the engineering team. If you don't have those receptive partners, then then all the all the goodwill doesn't really make much of a difference. And then I also have a manager who is pretty passionate about this. She, it, it, because my I, I took over from uh, from somebody before me, she actually ran diversity, equity, and inclusion for about a four or five month period and got a much more in-depth education about it than she had ever had before. So she's somebody who is is very supportive of pushing things. So that's the other part of this is money and investment are great, but you also have to have some partners who are willing to go along with you for the ride and who actually proactively reach out to you. Um, well, the other part is the other thing that I do I think I try to do at least is to understand what they're up against, because that's the other thing about the performative aspects that, that we have to think about as leaders is it's great if a company comes out with a five-year goal um, and the executives decide that, but who does that roll down to? That rolls down to recruiting because then everybody's telling recruiting, I need you to get me these candidates. So enrolling these partners early on is really important because sticking them with a goal that they weren't a part of developing is is problematic and not setting oneself up for success. So my point is that I think the investment is is important, um, but also having kind of that 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 support and and will from your colleagues and partners is 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 essential. 
And that was something that, that I, I, I couldn't measure until I got here, but has been, but has been refreshing and, uh, and a lot of fun. Now, look, before we get up out of here though, what are you excited about at Dropbox over the next year? And, and straight up, Danny, tell me, why should black and brown folks want to work there? So thanks for that question, Zach. And I, and I hope you want to come to Dropbox. One of the things that's really exciting is that I think it's a place where people can really be successful. It's really the extent, the way in which we support the whole person is really unique, not only in terms of what you can achieve and the work that you do, but also other aspects of your life. And that's become more important for us as we become a virtual first company. So what that means is that is that probably about 80% of the work will be done out of the home and only about 20% in our, co- in, in our collaboration spaces that we have. What that also does, though, is offers a unique opportunity because I talked about that 60% number of, uh, of people that are black and brown that are across the South. Well, we want you to come and work with us because now our roles are nationwide. We are not hiring just in New York or San Francisco or Seattle. Okay? We're hiring all over the place. And so I think you'll be very hard pressed to find a company that, um, that whether you're in Houston, <laughs> like you, Zach, <laughs> or in other parts of the South, whether that's Houston, whether that's New Orleans, where my dad is from, whether that's Atlanta, whether that's Chattanooga, whether it's Raleigh-Durham, um, those are all places where now you can come and work for Dropbox and have a really unique tech experience without leaving your home, uh, without leaving your community. And so that's something that we really want to we really want to grow. And one of the reasons why we actually decided to go virtual first was that. So I think it's a great place. It's it's really unique kind of environment. And uh, and if any of your folks are are interested, hit me up directly on LinkedIn. Okay, I don't know how many thousands of people I just opened myself up to. I'm about but, to uh, say, be careful. But I got you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's what I'm gonna do to that end. I'm gonna take I'm gonna take your LinkedIn, some information on Dropbox. I'm gonna put that all in the show notes and make sure everybody listen. Y'all hear me right here. Y'all hear what y'all heard what the man said. It's not an ad, and it's not even really like you know an endorsement either. But it is some love because I really appreciate Danny. For stopping by, I appreciate uh, Alyssa who's been there this whole time, making sure I don't get Dropbox in trouble. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yo, thank you so much, Danny. We got look. This is a. I, I'm tempted to ask you like five more questions, but this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna just count you a friend of the show, and then hope that we can do this again. Yeah, let's do a part two. You know, that's a. Uh, you know, I, I think that, that's why let's you know, always leave them wanting more, right? That's what they say, right? So let's do it. Let's do a part two sometime down the line. I'm here for it, man. We'll talk soon. I appreciate you. Okay, thank you, Zach. Peace. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Leadership Range, a podcast within the Living Corporate Network. Hosted by globally certified and Fortune 500 executive coach and leadership development expert Neil Edwards, The Leadership Range is focused on having real, raw, soulful, and accountable conversations about inclusive leadership, allyship, professional development. Every week is a new episode with new learning and new actions to take on to grow inclusively. Make sure you check out the leadership range everywhere you listen to podcasts. And we're back. Yo, again, shout out to Danny. Shout out to Dropbox. You know, it's interesting how you you think about these organizations. For me, I know that Dropbox is a tech company. Duh. But I don't know if I think about Dropbox beyond the fact that it's just a place where you hold your content. Right. Like. That's what I think about Dropbox. I don't think about like this huge community of people 
making all these things work. I just don't. I, I, I never did. And so I want to I want to shout out Danny. Um, really appreciated him sharing his journey on um, the things that uh, Dropbox is doing that, you know, that, that are creating impact and what he's excited about. Right. Like, I think like that's important when you talk to these people in these positions. It's like, OK, what are you looking forward to? Right. It's easy to kind of get in these like very. I don't know, just uh, monotonous conversations about with like with the same DNI buzzwords and having the same buzzword. But it's like, what are we actually doing in this space? What are, what impact are you creating? What are you driving? Right. And and also, what are you looking forward to? Like, I'm I'm just thankful that we were able to have that conversation. And um, listen, make sure you go ahead and you give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. You give us four. I'm, I'm going to think you're a hater. for real. And, and, and you are, to be honest with you. Like, I'm looking at you like, why are you hating? Five stars in a review. Come on, you know what to do. And then go ahead and use a little share button. Flip it to your friends. Tweeting it is great. Like, to be clear, social media is dope. Sharing it with like your actual little text message group. Everybody that I'm talking to right now has a text message group where you actually be texting it in there. Take this little podcast and share it in there. Right. Share it in there. You'll love yourself for it. after. You'll feel so much better. I promise. Anyway, until next time, y'all. This has been Zach. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.